and welcome to the Newspace Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Vadmore, and I'm here with Mike. You may know him as Parallel Mike. Uh, you may know him from Parallel Systems Broadcast and uh, Parallel Mike Podcast that you'll find on things like Rockfin and YouTube, of course. Um, I first, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest. Um, I'm gonna be honest. That sounds like a dishonest person, uh, but I know I, I don't mean honest. I'm gonna be uh, potentially a little bit. I, I think the word is maybe vulnerable, maybe uh, something along those lines. I'm gonna admit something that when I first met Mike, it was on. Uh, I think it was a political dark side Christmas special, and Monica Perez and other people were on there, and. I when I first saw him, I was like, "Who is this guy, and why do I want to get to know him so much?" Because I just had this feeling. As as well as that, it was really interesting to hear a Northern uh, accent. When I say that, I mean Northern England, like the John Snow accent. <laughs> no, I can't do it very well. Uh, come out and um and I grew up with a lot of Northerners when I was younger in the Shield Knot. And I always had a, an a affinity for the people of the north of England. I find them a completely uh, down-to-earth folks, so much more down-to-earth than the south of England uh, and, and Wales itself and Scotland above, you know, they were really chilled folks. So when I first met uh, Mike, I was just interested. I was like, I don't, who's this guy and why do I automatically like him and want to know more about him? So that's my my little bit of vulnerability. I'm sorry if I'm embarrassing you at all, Mike. Uh, <laughs> doing it within this intro, there will be a video version that's going out to, to supporters and will go out later. So if you're blushing, they'll see it. Sorry about that. But um, no, no, but I'm yeah, it's good, good. I, I'm, I'm extremely uh I, I, I interest to know more we've had a conversation uh on his podcast and we've had uh other conversations where i i feel that that he's a very lovely guy and i want to get to know more about him but then when i actually went into research and about him he just astonished me i mean there was there was the bits the the, the little bits i had known the little bits i'd picked up here and there but when i actually started to learn more i was like okay this is a guy who's who's uh got the ability to focus his mind in a way that well we should all be able to focus our mind um and it's a hard thing to learn to do and it comes from um you know a kind of letting yourself go to something which uh, is is bigger than yourself is more powerful than you are that you feel you can never uh quite compete and then you go and you do it it's like something that's it's within the realm of impossible fantasies that you can complete i mean he has had one hell of a life so i'm very interested to talk to him so Mike, thanks for coming on Newspace Podcast. I hope I didn't embarrass you with all that. No, I think the only person who's ever embarrassed me, Johnny, is myself. So you certainly didn't embarrass me. I appreciate uh -huh. the uh, lovely welcome. And, you know, I think you're an intuitive person, Johnny. I get the feeling uh, I'm a very intuitive person, and I'm sure we'll talk about that numerous times because that's a key part of who I am. But I think you're probably that as well, and it comes from having lots of experiences when you're young. You become very adept at picking up on micro emotions in people or uh energy around people and you know it's funny you can even pick that up through a screen like i never did anything online previously till i started doing my shows uh but i found that i can 
just as well pick it up through a screen, which is really interesting. You don't have to have that physical energy, but I think like attracts like, and we probably saw something in each other that was like, yeah, I want to, cause I was the same, just the same. I want to get to know Johnny. Uh, I, I just had a feeling that your energy and my energy would be similar. So it worked out. That, it, it was totally that. Really interesting thing you say there, because for the first, when, when it started off at the uh, birth of the internet and the birth of this sort of communication, the idea that you could actually get to know someone online seemed like stupid. It seemed like, oh, you're basically getting to know a robot or something. There seemed to be a detachment between the two humans by proxy of the internet. Um, and, and it is true that you, like in the past, we got to know each other by uh, letter writing and by then by phone calls and by other stuff so it's not like it's not like long distance relationships you've never got to know the other person but you get to know people uh by this uh in by interacting with them full stop so i mean the internet's got its 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 bad side but i mean at least it allows me to communicate with you all the way over there um so you are far away are you not? You're so far away from me right now. You're all the way over there in Eastern Europe, in the dangerous land of Poland. <laughs> right in the uh, danger zone. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, movie do So I don't speak any Polish. Do you speak any Polish? My Polish is bad as well. And I'll speak in Polish in case you've got a Polish uh, audience because uh, they'll be able to laugh at me. Um, yeah, my Polish is bad as well. I'll uh, show. Right, okay, okay. Well, I suppose that you're you're all right. You're you're, you're not. No, bad no, no. That, 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 like all you have to do, Johnny, is just perfect one or two lines and just repeat mm. them over and over again. Yes, <laughs> so I, I experienced. Okay, this. I can speak enough to survive in like uh, in a country. You know, I can go out and not get myself into too much bother. But it's uh, yeah, it's a difficult language for sure. It's meant to be the hardest for an English person to speak after maybe Chinese, they always put either Chinese as number one or Polish as number one, because there's a lot of sounds. There's a lot of like mm-hmm. or uh, and you've got to train your mouth how to get those sounds out, which takes about a year and a half, two years just by itself. Oh wow. yeah, uh, But yeah, once you've got them, it starts to open up a little bit. I worked in a hotel in Cardiff that was, first of all, uh, the general manager became Polish and then everybody soon was Polish apart from me. Uh, and his name was <laughs> Shamak and it was spelt with like a P-R-Z-E-M, something like that. It's, I mean, it's so far, you look at it, you don't see Shamak at all. You don't see that sort of thing. And even I'm probably pronouncing it like pig polish do you say pig polish <laughs> <laughs> no but you know what there's a polish movie it's a famous movie from the 19 i think it, i want to say 60s or 70s it's a comedy and funnily enough the polish comedies are just like our old british humor they've got mm. the same humor and there's a scene in it where the guy who's a polish man he gets captured by the nazis because it's set during uh, the start of world war ii and the commandant of the SS guard has his name written on a piece of paper. He asked him to t- write it down. <laughs> and uh, the guy's pronouncing his name uh, and he chooses a proper Polish name to give him. And uh, the commandant's getting angry and angry as he says, uh, he says, uh, name, please. And he goes, uh, what's his name? Um, I think it's Grzegorz And the guy, the guy goes, He's, he's sat at the typewriter and he's meant to be typing this into his little document. <laughs> and he goes, <clears throat> what? And he goes, <laughs> and he just keeps repeating this word. 
uh, and it's a classic scene of comedy. Uh, so yeah, apparently in Poland, if you can learn how to say Szczęczykiewicz's uh, name, then you've made it. You can uh, speak mm. Polish pretty good. So it's such a hard so sound. So you're, you're, you're right there. You're right on the, the <laughs> precipice of being Polish yourself and being a, a doctor. Well, I, to be honest, I'm, not, I'm probably not saying the correct name, Johnny. I'm not going to lie. I'm, no. I'm giving you my best shot. <laughs> uh, I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're showing a bit of your yeah, honesty there. Because um, <laughs> I... I I, I lived in France, and uh, even when I thought I got it, I was like, I'm pretty positive everybody's being polite to me all of the time, and they're just nodding at me, you know. And uh, we get through life by nodding at each other a lot of the time. So is Polish the first time you've learned a, um, a foreign language or tried to learn a foreign language? Absolutely. Yeah, it was the first time. And, and you know, it's one of those things where I think it sometimes is good to be the foolish guy who doesn't quite say the things properly it's a really nice character to be in a new place because it gives you that uh is it affability where people are just more like sensitive towards you the more caring you say something sometimes that's a little bit foolish it comes across wrong and everyone has a giggle mm -hmm. uh, to give you an example we've got a neighbor and he had a terrible accident just well when i moved here we've got a village of like about six houses uh he was in hospital and he was on life support. And what happened is he was working and he was working near electricity and the people in the building had forgot to turn this high power, high voltage electrics off. And he went past it and it sucked him in. Like the oh, energy wow. of the electricity literally sucked him in and it, he lost limbs. Uh, he was in a coma and most of his body was burned. So when I first met one of my neighbors, this was a terrible kind of story that he had to regale to me. He's like, oh, my son's in hospital. Uh, and I got to know him once he came out of hospital. He came, up, he woke out of his coma. They'd all said goodbye to him thinking he was going to die. And he woke up and came out of his coma. And uh, and I kind of got to know him. And, uh, yeah, I forgot actually what the point of the story was. <laughs> and the pronunciation of things where you just slightly mispronounce Yeah, okay, okay, we're back on track. Well done, thank you. Uh, and I was in the kitchen, and uh, he's, got, he's had about, he's probably had about 40, 50 surgeries. Uh, it's awful. He has to keep going back, and, you know, it's just a tragedy for sure, but it's a miracle on the other side of that that he's alive. And he's trying to rebuild his life. And we were sat in the kitchen and he was telling me about another bloody surgery that he just had. And, uh, you know, these are awful things for him to go through. He has to have skin graft after skin graft after skin graft. Uh, and uh, I said to him, um, I'm sorry, but I said the wrong phrase. There's a few different ways of saying sorry. Uh, and there's a way of saying it where it's actually saying, I'm sorry that I did this to you. <laughs> So we're all sat there and he's talking about this really depressing kind of situation and the atmosphere is pretty deep. And then I just say to him, I'm sorry. And the whole room just stops and then immediately erupts into laughter. Uh, and it made, <laughs> it made this really somber situation just a little bit lighter. And, you know, that's a nice thing. I think that was maybe, uh, maybe God was speaking through me. That was the only thing at that moment that could have been said to make that laughter erupt in a room when everyone was feeling depressed so i think that's a that's a good thing to be the fool sometimes yeah no i and i think i played that role as well um 
before I threw myself fully uh, full time into to, uh, journalism, I was working behind a reception desk of like a two star hotel with fifty rooms and typing behind the desk when uh, when it was quiet and stuff. Um, but a lot of the uh, people who stayed in the hotel were going to the local Valindra um, uh, radiotherapy uh, cancer. Uh, hospital um it was the closest hotel to it really um so it meant it meant that a lot of the people were, i i met people who were going through the last stages of their treatment and were on their way out um and people who refused to take the treatment and lived longer than all of them um and i had some you know i was always i played that role and played that role really well of, of being the jolly guy who makes everybody laugh and everybody like forget that they got you know all of the troubles because yeah troubles are everywhere i think that was my job actually in hotels because hotels are just rooms full of people with loads of troubles <laughs> yeah, well, I, all, I definitely get that sense from you johnny that you have that um character about you where you can speak to anyone you can uh you can you always can pitch yourself at the level where it's non-confrontational and very easy for that person to feel at ease in your company. And that's not me at all. I, I'm a more intense character by nature. So, uh, but I see that in you. And funnily enough, me and my wife spent the previous Sunday last week, I think it was, we was watching your auditing. And I, I absolutely love it because I'm a voyeur by nature. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why mm -hmm. I'm so good at like reading characters myself is a, uh, uh, all my life, I've been fascinated by watching people from afar and seeing how they respond and their characters. And uh, we watched about eight episodes back to back, and then we both dream groups <laughs> in bloody Cardiff. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, oh, it's a strange thing going out and meeting people. And I think the reason why I've now expressed that out so much is because I had so much anxiety once upon a time. And for a, a period of my life, I just could not leave the house. I just could not leave the house. The fear, the fear of meeting people. I met, I missed out on so many good friendships, you know, I had so many good relationships I could have through fear of, and I wasn't even sure what the fear was. Um, but I, I, I suppose, it, it, is that why you because your your life is one where you've entered into um sports that are, are heavily like you have to have loads of mental endurance for boxing you have to have loads of mental endurance for running um so was that your repairing or learning how to use uh sort of like your own uh, you know I, for me i feel that like i've done loads of different things to kind of get me on the road to uh, a better state of mental well-being um and one of the ones is communicating with people and going to talk with people relentlessly like i'm an endurance uh, <laughs> athlete in the talking front um is that the route you took with sports was that to get over a load of bad stuff really um, I guess, you know, I grew up in a really uh, strange family. Uh, my dad was a, a career criminal, like a gangster, you'd call him in the UK, in the US, uh, mafia. And it was more like mafia. If you've seen mafia films, it was re it's very much uh, that, but in Northern England. <laughs> like, not, yeah, yeah. like, you might, you know, those beautiful Italian accents, <laughs> we'll just replace them with Northern accents. And, uh, hey, up! Yeah. Yeah, I knew it was you, Frodo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Own. Yeah. Hey, up, lad. Uh, yeah. So it was just like that. Uh, so it was an interesting environment to grow up, and it was a hyper masculine environment, you know, 
for, you know, you're asking who's the person who's just coming in the room. Oh, that shotgun Shane, that, that's cutthroat. God knows what. That's exactly what it was like. And uh, uh, you as the son of that, uh, that man who's known everywhere, um, and everyone knows him in the city, and you're junior. You know, I was junior. He had the exact same name. Uh, you're expected to follow in the footsteps and to be hyper-masculine, but oftentimes the opposite happens because you're overwhelmed by that character mm. of your father, that you become a more submissive uh, man in that relationship, uh, which is normal with your father. I think it, a lot of people experience that. It's probably not unique to my situation, but I was not masculine, and I certainly wasn't a natural athlete, and I remember... I got sent to boxing when I was <clears throat> maybe about, I oh, was probably about nine. Uh, and I was, I, I, I wouldn't even dare throw a punch at the opponent. I used to get punched all over mm -hmm. <clears throat> by the other boys, but I, I was so timid, Johnny, that I wouldn't even want to throw a punch in yeah. case I landed yeah. it and they hit me back even harder. <laughs> I was that yeah, timid. I understand it. I had, uh, I had the same yeah. thing with martial arts. My dad took me to uh, learn Kashinkai karate and I didn't want to hurt people. I didn't want to punch people really hard. I just, I was timid in the same way. I understand. Yeah, I was just like that. And, uh, so I wasn't a natural fit for sports. I was last picked uh, for a lot of teams. Uh, and I was extremely skinny. Uh, by nature, I was an ectomorph. So uh, I used to get picked on in the changing mm. rooms for that. They'd be like, oh, look how skinny you are, Mike. And uh, But I do remember one Did thing. they I used to say, one... sorry, just remember that. Did they used to say, we're A up your ectomorph? Did they used to say that? <laughs> no, they didn't yeah. know the word ectomorph. I think it was probably yeah. twig or stick or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. this. Sorry, go on, go on. And uh, and yeah, so like, you know, so I, I kind of shied away from it all, I guess. But I do remember one incident uh, and it, it kind of come back around later on where we was doing a test of strength and uh, it was a really rudimentary test. So what they did was they got some scales that we stand on. You know, the old ones where you stand on it and a dial spins around, not these electronic <sighs> My favorite ones, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they got one of those old plastic school chairs, which you'll remember. <laughs> these, like, really crappy iron-legged school chairs with this plastic yeah, back. Yeah. And we sat in the chair, and they put the scale against the wall, and they got about five of the other boys to hold the back of the chair whilst you pushed against it to see how many times you could, how high you could get that dial. Could you get to 10 stones, 15 stones? Uh, and everyone did it in the class, and it, I was—I think I was the last one. Uh, and they were laughing as I was going to, because they were like, "Mike's legs are going to snap." <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I put the—I did it, and I pushed, and the thing just span and span and span, and it was the highest reading by a long, long way in the class. And yet, I had no real visible muscle, uh, and that didn't tell me anything at the time. But I did laugh at the other boys. I turned around and <laughs> I was like, mm -hmm. "What?" Well, I kind of strutted away, like, "Yeah, there you go." Uh, so I think I had some natural, uh, I think I was naturally predisposed to something athletic, but I just didn't reveal that till I was later. And the boxing came actually much later. I didn't start boxing again. I mean, I did a little bit as a boy, like I said, I hated it. And I went back when I was, I think I was about 19, 20, which is extremely old to start boxing. Yeah. And yeah, the reason yeah, I did yeah. that is uh, I kind of had a rough few years in my teenage years, did all the stuff that you shouldn't do. Uh, and then kind of reset my life and like went teetotal, started exercising and just threw myself into it. Like literally three hours, four hours a day, I'd be training every day. I lived like a monk, went back to university, studied theology. So I was maybe going to become a monk at some point and, uh, and started. <clears throat> and, uh, my dad got out of prison around that time. So my dad had spent my entire childhood in prison, uh, oh, for his wow. crimes. Wow, uh, and wow. he got out when I was about 20. Did you still I manage to maintain a relationship while he was in prison? 
Yeah, the entire time. I mean, he did two sentences. The first sentence was he got sentenced. I think it was eighteen years total. So it was a big, Oof. big old sentence. Uh, oh, of yeah. course, you don't do the full lot. Yeah. Uh, the first one was for a, a drug smuggle. It was about it was about forty million dollars worth of cannabis resin in today's money. Uh, probably about twenty million back then, uh, and it was the biggest ever smuggled to the UK at the time. So it was him and an international coterie of uh, criminals. A uh, really big guy from Ireland, David Hook. Uh, there was my dad from the UK and a number of others. His brother was actually with him. And uh, there was an insider. There was a, there was a mole who had been ratting out the gang for about three years. And uh, yeah, it was isn't all... Isn't it always? Yeah. Isn't it always? Yeah. And that's how it happened. So so he was inside for most of my childhood, but I did go see him up and down. I mean, I've been in, I'd say, at least 70 different prisons because you get moved around all the time. Mm-hmm. So we used to go travel down to Exeter, everywhere. Yes. And uh, when you go there, Johnny, you're in a room with all the other cons. <clears throat> and uh, you're, at, you're at a table with plastic chairs. There's a red chair for the prisoner. So he has to sit there. And that's probably because of how the cameras are all angled. Then you sit around the table. If you're lucky, there'll be a tuck shop. You know, there'll be like a vending machine in most of them, which is just crap. Uh, but there was one prison, particularly in Yorkshire. It's called the Wald's Prison. Uh, and believe it or not, there is there is a good prison. Like if you're a visitor, when you're going around, some of them are awful. They smell of uh, of, of urine. They stink. The, the guards treat you like crap as you're going through. But this one actually was awesome, and it actually had a tuck shop, and there was a, a an old lady. There was two old ladies, and they run this tuck shop voluntarily. There was from a local Christian group or church, uh, and they actually made you warm cheese toasters. Now, uh-huh. I'm sure to people listening, that is like, oh. Jeez, those things. <laughs> but believe it or not, like that that kind of normal normalcy that you got as a child to actually eat something warm with your dad who's in prison, uh, it changed everything that being in that place. It felt warmer. It was a nicer mm-hmm. environment. Uh, you you know, they didn't treat you so much like it was a prison, uh, like it wasn't so much like a prison relationship. So you felt almost like you were sat around uh, a kitchen table. You could imagine. Uh, and anyway, we'd sit in there for about three or four hours and uh, do a long, long visits. And, you know, I, I did get a lot of quality time with my dad there. Uh, and looking back, you know, he did a fantastic job of always keeping it positive. You know, he was a very oh. smart guy. He never allowed it to get negative unless something terrible had happened. Now and again, it did. Prisons are rough places. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes, like, you, like, sometimes if you're coming out and some, you have an altercation on the way, like, you know, you'd come out and be angry. But yeah. otherwise, no, we, yeah, we got a lot of uh, time. And then when you got out of prison, uh, you kind of go to an open air prison, which can, uh, is where you can actually go out during the day and do a, do a job, like a nine hour job, then go back to sleep there. Now, during that time, I just so happened to have gotten expelled from school. So I was kicked out permanently from school because uh, I was turning into a wrong one myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I used to do, Johnny, was ring me up in the morning and be like, I've got to deliver some fish because his, his best friend was the largest fish dealer in Yorkshire. Uh, so my dad got obviously got a job with him and he was delivering fish up and down the country. So he'd call me up and be like, Mike, I'm off to, uh, I'm off to uh, I don't know, Birmingham. Do you want to get in the car with me? And I'd sit in the car. So that was another kind of, prison forced experience where we're kind of trapped in this like bubble through because yeah, yeah. it's not a prisoner but i'd sit in that car and we'd spend eight or nine hours talking now as sad as it sounds they were actually some of my best memories with my dad because when he was actually out if you're a gangster you're not at home with your family and you're certainly not hanging out with your kids you're in holland you're in germany you're in spain you're all over the world uh so i never saw my dad until he became a prisoner which is uh, a bit tragic but they are happy memories johnny and i do have them and i started boxing when he got out of prison because 
uh, it was just a way of kind of reconnecting with him. You know, he was mm-hmm. he was always involved in the boxing clubs in the city. And he called me up one day and said, Mike, do you want to come down and do a bit of training? Uh, boxing. So I was like, yeah, because I used to train at home on a punch bag, but I had no idea what I was doing. I used to read books. Uh, anyway, I went down, turned out I was a natural. Within a year, I had my first fight, and that was that. I was away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was fighting like? I mean, yeah, it, 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 were, you, were, you, were you like uh, making a, a career out of just fighting? Were you, is that what you were doing full time? I tried it like that. I, w- I was extremely dedicated. Uh, as an athlete, I was a fierce uh, competitor with myself, always trying to, you know, I'd always measure myself against the best level that I could. So I was always And at the same to- time, you're, you're learning about theology and you're kind of that, that, now that, what, what I, I, obviously that gives you an extra string to your tactical bow, but in what way? <laughs> yeah, I used to, I used to get in the ring and then do a little <laughs> meditation. And <laughs> I don't like punching you, but I'm going to punch you. I'm sorry. About yeah. That. yeah. You know, I, I didn't compete a lot of times because, uh, I mean, ultimately I was very, I was, I was a natural at boxing and it turned out that that physique that I had uh, naturally which was uh, tall and skinny meant I was a really uh, tall fighter for my weight class I was extremely mm-hmm. light for somebody of my height so I used to fight guys who were about five foot four and I'm six foot six foot oh, one on a good day no so I was cheeky a, oh That's god cheeky it, it was a, a massive bit of a reach yeah 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 <laughs> with that and I and I was I had a brilliant job I'm a natural left-hander who fought as a right-hander which means my power hand was always in front so I was just jabbing the head off these little guys and they couldn't get close to me. And I'm not going to lie, it was a huge advantage. Uh, but, that, but I was the same weight. You know, I mean, I used to spar with uh, middleweights and heavyweights because I was more that their height. So I never got it easy in the gym. But in my fights, I was always uh, toughened for them. And I was naturally very fit. And not naturally, I trained like a trained like a madman. But uh, but I was very fit too. And uh, and yeah, I ultimately hoped to do that. But you know what, Johnny, uh, I didn't have sports psychology at that time. Yeah, and I just couldn't figure it out. Like I used to get extremely anxious in the build up to a fight, extremely anxious. And it wasn't because I was scared of fighting because I used to go have wars in the gym. I mean, I remember when I boxed Amir Khan's uh, little brother. So he was like, it, it, we were, the gyms like you used to get other gyms from up and down the country coming to your gym. Uh, and this was a really big night for your gym because it was like now you're all, all, all you and all your teammates and all these other ones are coming in and we're, you know oh, and, somebody, and, yeah, and they yeah. set it up and it was like right you're going to be boxing oh it's Amir Khan's little brother now for those listeners that don't know Amir Khan was a world champion uh, boxer for a time and at that point he was really big and his little brother was coming and I was in the same weight class so this was everyone was waiting for that fight it was like Mike's boxing Amir Khan's brother uh and you know i used to love those wars and i always rose to the occasion but i hated hated competition because the the three nights before i would just be like i couldn't sleep i felt sick and it was performance anxiety being in front of my family being Mm -hmm. in front of my friends uh, letting people down particularly my dad uh, that never went away so i struggled with that side and ultimately that's what uh, i really struggled with as a boxer i was extremely talented should have done a lot more than i did but uh yeah i couldn't figure out the psychology and that 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 was why I just never went as far as I should have gone. So that's that's where uh, maybe the moment, like where the the mix of theology and this endurance athlete and the mental uh, 
like issues with dealing the psychological issues with dealing that i suppose led you to then looking to uh understanding yourself and then going on to to being a counselor i take it is that what what happened is it a mixture of of because because i it makes me want to ask one question just before getting a, 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 any answer to that or or what comes next but it's like um are, are you religious now have you always been religious religious ah, religious strong word spiritual have you always have you, do you believe in a god yeah definitely 100 percent. i believe in 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 a god and a loving god and a creator that that does love us and wants us to succeed and wants us to fulfill uh fulfill a divine plan which is not for the world to be as it is today uh, I, I went to university to study theology because I, I felt a calling in my heart that there was something more, something meaningful. I, I had a lot of experiences growing up, and uh, not just in my family, but you know, friends who who had all kinds of tragedies, you know, suicides, rapes, all kinds of things. It was a very, very packed first part of my life, and I always naturally tended towards uh, empathy towards people and being somebody who wanted to take care and help people. Uh, I mean, Johnny, you won't believe it. I can even remember, I've, I even remember some silly things. Like I remember once I was sat in a hairdresser's and a boy runs by and he, he stops and he, he looks in the window and he's got a lazy eye and I think he's being chased by some kids. And just that sticks in my head because if I felt sorry for someone, if I felt empathy, it's such a strong emotion for me yeah, yeah, that I do yeah. generally, uh, I've got like a photographic memory of those feelings and memories attached to it. So Silly things like that. I was always that way. So it was always a natural fit for me to kind of go towards something where uh, I'd get to express that. So theology was the start of it. Um, I stood, I focused mainly on Buddhism and Eastern religions. So I thought Buddhism was my path. And uh, I learned a ton, ton through that. And uh, a lot of my beliefs now are from that period where I don't think Buddhism gave me the beliefs, but they crystallized what I already had kind of figured out and was figuring out. I was like, oh, yeah, this fits. Uh, but but my I guess my today my beliefs that you know what I actually believe is probably um, close you know Christianity would be a rough uh, a rough kind of figurehead uh, and as a boxer you know I, that that did actually you know because I'm I was naturally growing I mean growing up I was extremely angry because of I was a young boy my dad had been put in jail I got kicked out of school anger was a big problem but as I got older and I started to figure that out. Um, what I found is that as a boxer, uh, people, the only reason most of those boys can get in the ring, Johnny, is because they get themselves very angry before a fight, because it's an extremely confrontational situation. It's you and another human being getting in front of a, an audience who are screaming for your, for yours or his blood. Like they want to see someone get knocked out. In my first fight, I, it was away. So I was in Halifax and I remember at this point, I'd never had a fight. And I was in the changing rooms and uh, warming up and I was feeling great. Uh, and I had no clue what was awaiting for me. It was an Irish pub and I walked out to the crowd and I expected them all to be stood up clapping like some kind of English gentleman's competition. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't like that, Johnny. I walked out and the first thing I heard was fucking kill him. Kill that skinny bastard. <laughs> Stick <laughs> to Queensboro rules. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, th and there was glasses flying. In There was a fight breaking out in the middle of oh, my wow. fight. It was yeah, absolute okay. carnage. Awesome. Uh, awesome. And it was, a, it was like shell-shocked. I was absolutely <laughs> yeah. shell-shocked because it yeah. wasn't like a, it wasn't a sporting competition. It was a Roman Coliseum and they wanted blood. <laughs> they wanted my blood ah! all over the ring. That's what they wanted. Yeah. 
Uh, fortunately they didn't get it and I won the competition uh, uh, quite handily and, uh, and they cheered me at the end of it and that's that's how it always goes you know they want to see you get knocked out but at the end of it everyone admires you for doing it they want to shake your hand and it's uh, it's all all friends again but I, I guess my point in all of that was a lot of those boys you'd see them before the fight getting themselves very amped up that was never me I was calm as <laughs> as calm as a monk in the, in the build up to a fight I never had that at all and I remember before uh, the British Championships when I was fighting, uh, a guy whose name actually was uh, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> he certainly wasn't Muhammad Ali, but that was his name. And he came to my changing room before the fight and he and he, and he come up with a little posse. It was like a gang of about six of them. And they walk in and he says, he says, I'm coming for you, Mike. He said, I'm coming for you. <laughs> uh, and I could, and I looked in his eyes and I was totally calm and I certainly don't, didn't get angry. And I just thought, you're, you've already lost because, you know, I could see that he was amped up. He was fearful. And I was like, all I have to do is stay calm. Because when you're amped up and you're fearful and you're aggressive like that, mm. you can't think clearly. And, and, and boxing is a game of chess. Contrary what, to what people who don't understand the sport, it's a very difficult sport. You've got to um, show offensive and defensive skills at the same time whilst moving around a chessboard. It's extremely complex. And uh so I was always very calm, and that's what essentially I think made me uh, a very talented boxer was that ability to stay calm in the fight. It was just the build-up, Johnny, where yeah, not not on the day, not when someone was in the change rooms, but the nights before. The because I, I'm one of those people who thinks ahead a lot. So yeah, so yeah, the emotions yeah. did come into it, but ultimately when I was boxing, uh, I was already on that path towards becoming uh, eventually a, a counselor and a social worker, uh, and uh, and running was a response to my. <clears throat> Running that what I actually became very successful at later on was actually a response to me failing as a boxer. Uh, I, I found another spot and I said, I'm not going to waste my talent this time and I'm going to go all in. Uh, and that's mm. what I did as a runner. So it was a response to that failure, uh, trying to correct it, you know, what I did wrong. But, so but, I, I never really worked on my psychology at that point. For for people yeah, who will think that you're just talking about running, you're not just talking about running. Uh, I got, I got, um, I, I got my 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 lovely brother from another mother monkey, and we were talking about endurance running and um, and how how do you term it? It's um, ultra marathons. Is it ultra is that running? How, yeah, ultra uh, running. ultra uh, ultra running. Um, it's a bit crazy that I, I said to to him, and he's done a marathon or two, and he turned like blue in the face and keeled over. I think he's dead. I think he's still in the living room <laughs> right now. <laughs> no, he's not. It's not true. He's not dead. But he did. He did look like this. Ah, uh, you know that. That so. So how many? How many? How how? how I just want to ask the question, so I'm going to ask it. I know, I know, it's like a child looking at, at, at something it's just found and going, "What's the furthest you run in one like in in that way?" Then, yeah, the furthest I run was 100 kilometers uh, through the uh, through the Peak District. So that's like you know, oh. all my races generally were trail races, so they had a lot of elevation gain. So it's probably about, I mean, I'd say about 63, uh, sorry, 63, 64 miles on trail, probably like 80 miles on a flat road, but it's a different spot entirely. You know, those mountains, you have to be rugged, lots of leg strength. Uh, and there's lots of different skills that are involved in trail running because some people are fantastic at running down the hill. Some are, some are fantastic at running up the hill. Some are fantastic mm. at keeping food in the system. You know, when you're running for 12, 13 hours, your body just shuts down, like you vomit, you... Some people can't eat. Some people can't drink. 
so there's all kinds. Of, it's a strange spot. It really is a bit of a, a self-punishment type spot, you know. Yeah. Yes. It's like it's very. It, it makes me think that there's a lot of uh, runners who possibly studied theology too, and it might actually just be <laughs> like a modern form of, of flagellation, <laughs> and it's just a load of uh, a load of people who would have once upon a time been in the monasteries before Henry VIII come along. <laughs> Um, I think it so, does. No, I, I saw that for sure. Yeah, there are runners out there. I mean, a lot of the runners had had depression, and uh, I mean, for me, it was actually a response from from a period where I had some uh, tragedies, a near death experience, and uh, I become depressed, and that's actually why I started going running in in forests mm. by myself, all alone in the forest. Uh, it's a bit of an antisocial thing. It was reconnecting with nature, reconnecting with myself and my body. And uh, and so so yeah, it was that hundred percent. That's why I started running too. And I found a lot of people did that because you know nature is very healing. So there's people who want to spend ten hours out. Or I mean, some people it's twenty hours. Like it, you know, if I'm if I'm winning a race in ten hours, then last place might be coming twenty five hours. So I used to admire those guys. Like I'd finish wow. a race, I'd be in the pub within a few hours, but then I'd sit and watch. And wait until the very last person came in every single time. They'd come in about 15 hours later. And I, I'd admire them guys. You know what I mean? So, uh, but for someone to want to do that, I think you have to really find that value and uh, something special in nature. And usually it's usually that's the place for healing, isn't it, nature? So you, mm. you can understand why people who have been through tough times could gravitate towards that spot. Also, we used to get a lot of vets from the army. So because they used to spend a lot of time with rucksacks on going out on matches. So it would, would be a way of them kind of decompressing and reliving that in a way. So you see, oh, used wow. to see a lot of that. And yeah, people who would come back from illness to cancers. Uh, I want to run an ultramarathon to, to, to re get my confidence back, show that I can do something amazing. So yeah, I, it was a great community spot for sure. Really nice. Great community sport, but I mean, you've got to. How do you get into that mindset? How do you? I, I, I know there's no, there's going to be no easy answer to this. Um, but I, I, for me, I love going, I walk for ages and I do lots of different things, but I uh, don't necessarily have a sport that uh, I got, I got a bit of arthritis in my toes. Um, and uh, you know, the excuse, unfortunately, not to do some things which I want to get sorted, but uh, like the actually other things, I could do a range of sports. How do I get myself motivated into that? Do I need to have to have a load of problems on the rear that I need to sort out? <laughs> is that what is that what needs to happen? Is that what propelled you through sports, really? No, I think I think I think you need to have that drive because there's a lot of people in those spots. I mean, just because you do a spot like that, it doesn't necessarily mean you want to do it competitively. There's a big mm -hmm. difference between trying to finish an ultramarathon, like go out and say, I want to finish this 50 mile race and I'm going to try and take in the scenes. I mean, you're going to suffer a lot anyways, but it's, it's completely different when you say I'm going to finish it as fast as I humanly can. Uh, because mm -hmm. that requires you to push your body and mind to to to, to hard places because you've got competition uh, and the competition's got the same goal. So those four or five guys in a race who are in it to win it, uh, that's a war. And it's, it's a psychological battle. And uh, you might mm -hmm. not see each other for a lot of the race, but when you do see each other, uh, there's you know it, you are pushing yourself to the limits for sure. And ultimately, uh, it is a it is competitive, but it, it's very you know there's a lot of camaraderie too. So. Uh, for me, I, I'm I'm naturally competitive with myself. Uh, I, I've got a good 
a good kind of handle on not allowing that to become toxic. And, you know, I never looked at other guys and thought, oh, I want to beat him. It was like, no, I, I want, I want to do the best I can do on this. Mm -hmm. I want to be the best I can be in this race. Uh, and I use sports psychology a lot to kind of propel myself to, to a much higher level than I should have been able to achieve early on. Uh, within a year I was winning races, which is not normal. It's usually 10, 15 years of running. Uh, but I already had boxed as well. So I had this, I had a good capacity to suffer, put it that way. I understood how to, how to push through suffering in training a lot. I used to train harder than most. And, uh, yeah, I think it's that. And, and, and I think emotionally as well, Johnny, like growing up in having all those experiences, <clears throat> uh, I, I did become good at suffering. I've very got high, very high tolerance for it. So it, it, running was naturally running, ultra running, should I say, was not a natural fit from somebody in my disposition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, I, I got uh, so many things like come into my mind about w what that means and and where you go from there. Um, do you still do sports at the moment? Do you do like do you, do you still do like now you're not ultra running, but do you still do a marathon here or there? Uh, I, I, you know, my running career ended, Johnny, because I got a, a career-ending injury in my leg. No, so no, uh, no basically, way. it happened and. Um, it happened so early on, like literally I was just kind of coming into my, I wasn't even in the spot that long, to be honest. Uh, my, most of my spot, put it this way, most of my running career, I was injured and trying to get back from the injury. Mm. So I had this one kind of glorious year where I, I, my my trajectory was vertical. I, I was winning races. People were saying, who's this guy? Where's he come from? Looked fantastic. Um, and just after that race, I told you about that 100K race. Uh I had an injury uh, and I didn't take care of it because I was too competitive I, with myself. Like I refused to, mm -hmm. I was like, I don't want to lose my, 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 my fitness. So you, I'm not going to rest. You it. said, you said that you use sports psychology to get through that sort of late, late to under, how, how, what's the fundamental difference between sports psychology and general psychology or, um, yeah. So that's a good question. I mean, sports psychology, uh, is very much, transmissible to life in general what it's about is about trying to um raise your inner expectations in a very deep-rooted way so right in the subconscious so it's really picking apart all of those self-beliefs that are limiting so what do you tell yourself about how um you're not meant to be good you're not you know you're not you're not worthy enough what are all those thoughts that have been put in there over the years by other people you know those thoughts that when you was a child and people were saying you're no good at this you're no good at that how do you remove them and take away all of those hidden limiters so that you can then excel yourself into a future far, far quicker than should be possible? Uh, is it possible? Well, it is, but you have to really rewire that brain. So as, a, as an athlete, what you're trying to do is imagine yourself as somebody who is capable of successes that are far exceeding your natural ability or where you are right now. So it's almost like like conditioning the brain to expect greatness uh, and not in a very egotistical or superficial way. I, I, that's what matter. I was thinking about the, 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 you know, aspects of how to control one's ego during that process, because that just seems like, wow, how would you get there? I mean, that, that, that gives you such a, a, um, a, a, a brilliant amount of power to, to make, good decisions based on positive outcomes in your own in, in, in your own life you know in your individual life that's such a 
if so so keep going sorry sorry I, I... no it's fine i mean i had a coach uh and he was he was a he was the british champion in ultra trail uh but he had a very very interesting training philosophy in that he used to tell me it doesn't matter how many miles a week you run mike and i used to run 100 miles a week every week that was it so I, I was like, you know, that it was a full-time job and I went part-time in my career so I could fully invest myself uh, financially, psychologically. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't speak to anyone. I lived like the monk. When you mentioned the monk, that's what my life was like. Like I didn't see anyone. Even Christmas Day, I run 20 miles on Christmas Day every year. You know, it was part of my, it wow. didn't matter how cold it was <clears throat> or what time of day it was. If I'd worked all day and I and it overrun it, it was 9 p.m. If I needed to get the miles in, I was running. So it was very much a monk-like lifestyle, uh, but uh, but I guess my my coach used to say, Mike, it doesn't matter how much you run. Uh, what matters is the non-physical training, which is what you're doing on your mind, your visualizations, your uh, your limiting self beliefs, getting them out of your head, really working on them. So, what language do you use? For example, Johnny, a lot of people would say to you, "Oh, how's your running going, Johnny?" You say, "Ah, not bad." not bad like you really want to qualify it with a not bad like a negative it's like no you have to really get rid of all of that you really have to take away every potential limiter uh, that's there and it's a, and it's an arduous process but when you do it what you find is your subconscious mind then is freed up to absorb more positive things which can actually help you uh, and, and and you know i used to work with people as a as a counselor and it was it was much the same process john it was trying to help them work through all of the shit that had been put in their head growing up, all of the negativity, get rid of that. Mm -hmm. And now you've got that clean slate and you can build upon that uh, any kind of amazing structure that you want over time. Uh, but there has to be evidence too. So, I mean, you have to be putting in the work. It's not like you, you know, you read these books, people say, oh, you can manifest the future. It's like, no, no, there is a truth to that, but it has to be paired with a, an extreme amount of hard work. You know, and, and your capacity for that is going to be different throughout your life. You know, if I meet if I meet somebody who's clinically depressed, their capacity for hard work might be brushing the teeth and getting back in bed. They got out of bed once a day. That's hard work for them. Uh, so it's always about that person's capacity at the time. So, I mean, as an athlete, your goal is to try and raise that capacity to its maximum buff without going over the edge where you get uh, a life-limiting injury or a, or a career-ending injury, which is what happened to me. It wasn't life-limiting, but it was career-ending. So so that's a long response to the question. Uh, yes, I, I still run, uh, but I have to listen to my body, and it's always there. I can, you know... Uh, I, I feel blessed every day that God allows me to go out and do five, ten miles if he does. If not, I train at home. There's a, there's a million other workouts that I can do, but I, I love to get out, Johnny, if I can. Uh, but I just have to uh, listen to that body, you know, and treat it with respect. You know, don't treat it as something to abuse. You know, as a runner, you're running 100 miles a week. If you feel injured, you're trying to push through it. It's like, no, I learned balance after running. You know, that's one of the key lessons I took away from it. Well, it... Uh... <laughs> this might be this might be terrible because I mean, you you might not have got there yet. But when did you get to a point where you feel like you've got um, uh, a, a good enough understanding of psychology, whether it be sports psychology or any other type of psychology, um, that you felt that you understood yourself and the things that do limit you? Because you were talking about these the, the 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 things that limit you, but you're also talking about how like um, someone who's clinically depressed would, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it is on a very low. How how do you lift up? How do you take away? um and do that without becoming uh 
uh, so, so the want of power, this narcissistic, egotistical maniac that's bursting through the door and eating all of the cake. How, how do you, how do you um, take? How do you learn how to get away all of those li- limiting language? Because I, when you were saying that, what was going through my mind was the years of thinking in school. Why are they telling me that I won't be able to do anything and I will be nothing? And I will do nothing with my life all of the time even when they thought they were being nice that was their language was like yes but you won't be able to do that yes but that's not for you yes but that's 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 not that's for that's for a girl and not for a boy he's <laughs> sewing I, I remember that I wasn't allowed to use the sewing machine because what's the point? And it's like, it, surely we got past this. It's the nineties, but no, we, we haven't got past it. Um, I got a lifetime experience as a youth of being given all of those limits. Who gives who? That seems like a conspiracy. <laughs> who's giving <laughs> us these limits? Who's who's putting these limits upon us? Is it ourselves? Is it our parents? Is it our society? Is it everything? Uh, is it um, a, a response, a fear response? Is it fear of the unknown? Is it a way to uh, counteract, uh, to stop people walking into danger? What What is it all about? Yeah, it's it's all of those things, Johnny. But from our earliest experiences, it's going to be the people around us. So definitely at school, of course. But I think your parents probably have the biggest influence on all of that growing up. Uh, and, you know, it's funny that you mentioned about your teachers. I remember when I went to uh, careers advice, where you was meant to be told what you could be, what you could aspire to. Uh, and for somebody who is already, you know, who has self-confidence issues, uh, angst, is anxious, this was all me, you know, and probably most of my friends too. And uh, I remember I went to Cruise Advice uh, and she told me, like, and I had no, literally zero aspirations, like none, because I honestly don't remember a positive thing ever been said to me up until the age I was about 17. Like I never had any positive feedback. So uh, it's just, I, I had zero aspirations, you know, I thought, and when, when my careers advisor, it was a woman, she told me uh, you could be a cleaner. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. And uh, sure enough, my, my job when I left university, my first job was cleaning a fish factory floor. That was it. My second job was in a cleaner again in a supermarket. Because because what we hold in our mind to be true, that is that is what that that's what sets our capacity. And if you limit if you're limited at a cleaner in your mind, you're not going to go out and become a multimillionaire uh, CEO. I mean, not that I'd want to be that, but God, God no. But you know, what I mean, like what we hold in our mind to be true is ultimately what's going to allow us to either flourish like an oak tree. You know, if you give the oak tree space and you allow it to grow, it will grow. But if you cramp it in and box it in. It's not going to, it's going to wither away. And it's the same with ourselves. And uh, so for a long time, I had that problem. Like I I genuinely couldn't foresee myself doing anything good. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, like I said, I got kicked out of school. I became a cleaner. I was drinking a lot. I was smoking a lot. I was reading a lot of articles about central banking. (laughs) It's like going down those rabbit holes, you know, as you do. And uh, I had a good friend. I had a monkey too. And uh, we used to stay up all night long talking about this stuff figuring it figuring the world out you know predicting the future a lot of those prophecies sadly came true and um and yeah it, I, it wasn't until i went back to college uh because my friends were going so i kind of thought well if i go i can go out and drink with them every day on the dinner time which is what we did 
Uh, but I, and I thought, well, right, I'm going to choose the easiest course I can because I don't want to work. Uh, I hated school at this point because I'd never had a good, good experience there. Uh, and I chose art. <laughs> and um, I thought, anyone can draw, right? You just sit there and draw. Thought, well, that's an easy way to spend a year. I'll get that. Uh, we had this thing called like an allowance where if you went to every, you went to 90, if you had 95% attendance, you got £30 a month. So I thought, oh, well, that's great. That's £30 a month for the pub. Of course, I never got it once because there's no way I was making 95% attendance. But I was lucky enough that the the art teacher, uh, a guy called John, he was, um, I mean, I remember the first day I met him, I thought he was a student. I'd gone there with my friend. I wasn't planning on going to college, uh, actually, to tell you the truth. I'd gone with my friend and she was going uh, and I was sat in the canteen waiting for her on the induction day. And this bohemian-looking bohemian guy came across. He had this crazy big ginger hair, like coming out like a wild fox. And he had these really tight clothes, really smartly dressed, uh, really kind of like camp style with his hands. And he sat down in front of me and I was like, who's this guy? I had my hood up, my headphones in. And he, he tapped me on the shoulder. So I was like, okay. Uh, and he says, what are you listening to? And I think I was listening to, uh, I was a punk band. Maybe I was listening to Green Day actually. And he said, oh yeah, I used to, I used to, I used to play in a band as well. And then anyway, the conversation started. And next thing, we had a 20-minute conversation purely about music. And at the end of that conversation, he says to me, so what are you doing with your life? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what, what are you planning to do? And I said, nothing. <laughs> he went, what do you mean nothing? And I said, what do you mean nothing? I mean, nothing. I'm not doing out. So he said, what, you do, what do you want to be? And I said, I, I don't want to be anything. I was like, I, I just want to hang out with my mates. Like, that's it. And he said, well, I'm a teacher here. And I was really shocked, like, because he didn't look like a teacher. And uh, he said, well, listen, I'm an art teacher. He said, why don't you come to my class? And I was like, I can't draw. And he said, um, he said, listen, anyone can draw. He said, anyone can draw. He said, I'll teach you how to draw. He said, well, he said, if you come to my class, he said, I'll put some, I'll even put some music on, some punk music. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, really? He was like, yeah, yeah. He said, I'll stick some tunes on. Uh, so he convinced me to sign up. Uh, and he was basically a mentor to me, he looked after me. Uh, when they tried to kick me out for low attendance, he uh, used to lie about my attendance. He pulled me to one side and said, Mike, he said, I'm going to sign you as here because they're going to kick you out. He said, I'm going to sign you as here. And so long as you do the work in your own time, then I will keep signing you here. So what I used to do is I'd come in like half drunk. I'd go to a closet, which he set aside just for me. It was like this room, this dingy little room with a big uh, table where I could do my art. And he said, Mike, don't come into the class drunk. Go into that room. And he said, just do your work and I'll sign you as here anyway. Long story short, he made sure that I got through that course. Uh, and that was ultimately when I started to turn my life around. But it took having somebody uh, to be a mentor and tell me. He was the first person in my life that I can ever remember uh, telling me, Mike, you're good. You can do something with your life. You've got something to offer. And he was also the first person to ever tell me, uh, you were let down, which <laughs> I never knew. I thought, my, I thought I was a little shit. I, it was all my fault, Johnny. And he mm -hmm. said to me, no, he said, Mike, he said, you know, he said, you had a tough life. And he said, school should have done better for you. you know, they should have done more for you. And I'm not trying to uh, listen. I've got no victimhood in me. But to hear that was actually very touching because it, it was somebody else telling me uh, that not everything's my fault, Johnny, that there are bad things that happen outside of yourself. Uh, and that was uh, that's actually it was him who spared me on to uh, actually become a counselor because I thought I want to do what he did for me. I want to do for other people. So he was always a driving uh, motivator in my life. And, uh, and yeah, that was kind of what sent me down that path. And all those years later, that's what I did. I, I feel that it was uh, when, when you were telling that story there, 
I was thinking about uh, Mrs. Rosalind Matthews. I don't know if she's still around. <laughs> she's like, she sounds great. Tell me about yeah, Mrs. Rosalind Matthews. Oh, well, well, she was just, I mean, she, she, it, when I was going through, um, I was terrible in college. I was just stoned all the time, a lot like that, uh, but with with moments of drunkenness within there too, uh, in in much the same way. And I would turn up late. Sometimes I would turn up. But I would try. I would. I was terrible. I I was ill with Graves' disease, and I didn't realize I had Graves' disease. So I was like, mostly felt like I was dying all the time, and everybody was telling me that I was all right all the time. And this would like last until I got diagnosed when I was twenty seven. So when I was in college i used to i used to bunk off all the time terribly i used to uh move the bed to the side and i was so tired all of the time that i used to just put myself just like a skinny guy anyway and i could just like fling myself down the side of the bed and i'd sleep down the side of the bed so if my mum come in the room you know i wouldn't look like i was in bed or anything but i'd be sleeping down the side you know i'd be i'd be and then i turn up at school at three o'clock and mrs matthews well she protected me uh she stopped me from getting suspended or kicked off the course she 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 knew i was going through some stuff at home but she also like helped me through my mum and dad's divorce and lots of other things you know she was she was someone who at the time my life was so stressful my dad and my mum were having like the worst divorce i just discovered like i had this sister i never knew about and it were all these lies and skeletons coming out of the closet and all at once and i had it was like 1997 it was a uh, boxing day and i was called in after everybody had been really like the christmas had been really good everybody had been really calm it'd been the first christmas in history in the vedmore household where everything had been calm never was there christmas. i i mean there was christmases where my my sister got burnt by my dad literally burnt and run off and stayed at the the um uh, ymca or whatever or the 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 homeless hostel and there was years where there was just screaming and shouting all over the place but this was a really nice christmas it didn't make any sense at all and it turned out that they were about to have a divorce and then all of this truth came out and all of this suddenly my life was a lie in so many different ways but i was just like oh really kind of relieved but in the same way there was like loads of fear my sister got pregnant by a guy who was hitting her um and it wasn't a very nice like feeling uh, the whole thing was just kind of like a spiral in my life and there was this beautiful woman miss matthews who would sit there while i sat there stressed out with my nose bleeding from stress like just suddenly i'd have nosebleeds here and there feeling like terrible all the time and it was miss matthews who was my stable rock gave me all the confidence that i had never been given before that i could actually do something good and i was a nice boy and i wasn't a nasty person and all of those different things which other people had put onto my shoulders and i had kind of just walked along with it saying i deserve everything everything i'm going to get i deserve everything i'm going to get and it was two women it was uh, mrs matthews and a woman a little bit earlier who kind of instilled a tiny bit of that called mrs challenger um she was a beautiful like character she massively she got angry she got angry with me many times she had these really thick glasses like really thick and her eyes would go from squint to just the entire lens is filled up if she was angry and <laughs> she would feel her wrath but i mean they were they were women who who for the first time yeah in my life just like you you know give you that lift put you up there and you know make you feel good and i think looking back to be honest uh, Mrs. Matthews did that kind of because uh, her son had committed suicide um, years before 
and uh, she, she, I think, I know she always like saw me as looking like her son and stuff like that. So I think she did it out of thing. Uh, there was other reasons behind it, but regardless, it was a kindness that I hadn't been given elsewhere. And I, at a time that I really needed it. Um, uh, but it didn't necessarily form me into, uh, you know, a focused character because it kind of, for me, it kind of mollycoddled me, I suppose. A little bit. I didn't come out the other end with this kind of feeling that uh, necessarily that I was uh, a good person or anything like that. I just, I, I, I did. I, I just realized that I wasn't all bad. Um, that gave me confidence to go the into same the workplace. Yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. the same, buddy. Yeah, it was just, just, it just was the first time that first time, and it was mm-hmm. just a paradigm shift. Like, oh, there is, there is such a thing as positivity. <laughs> there is such a thing yeah. as nice feedback. Yeah, yeah, that's a really rare one. So, so what, 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 how have you, like, you know, you said you've been in uh, counseling uh, and social work. How, what, what area of that have you, you been, uh, uh, you, is most of your experience? Uh, I specialized as much as I could with young people. Um, <clears throat> and I worked mostly for charities. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, so I spent most of my career um, uh, working. Uh, I mean, I was very, very selective in my career from the very beginning so that I could work almost exclusively with a set and age range. So it was usually uh, young people under 18. So it was 17 down. And the reason for that is because I knew that that is the age range. If you can get someone join those age ranges, you can help that person change their life and stop them from becoming the drug addicts, the prostitute. Uh, the suicide case. Uh, so I focused specifically on where I could do the most good. Also, I knew from my own experiences just how many people fall through the cracks. And I knew from my own experience in my life that had I not met that person and that person put himself out there and dragged me almost to, to becoming, you know, to joining his class and to allowing me to have some mentorship, then there's a good chance I would have been. I mean, my trajectory was. People used to, everyone, including my own family, used to say, you're going to end up either like your dad in prison, uh, a criminal, or like your uncle, who was a heroin addict. That was it. So I was always terrified of that. Like, oh, I'm going to end up like that. Whereas he uh, gave me another, a third way. Like, no, there's something else you can do, Mikey. You know, you're not destined. Because it was destiny for me that I was going to end up like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was told to me so many times. It was imprinted. So, so I thought, well, I thought, well, how tragic there's all these other kids out there growing up in these families like mine, uh, and they're going to end. Loads of them, maybe ninety five percent of them, might end up fulfilling that destiny that's been said laid out for them. What if I could just focus on that? So that's what I did, and uh, it meant I I did work a lot with families too, Johnny, because you're always working with the parents. Ultimately, you, you know, you have to try and get in those families too to, to, you know, you can't change the parents much sometimes, but even if you can get a 5% better situation, that can be huge for a young mm. person. So we was always working in families too, but it was a lot, I'd say a lot, mostly one-to-one work. So just you, the young person and whatever shit they bring to that table on that day. And, uh, and yeah, and then you're there, you're there working in the background. So you're like, right. We need to sort out the mental health. We need to get them a place at college. We need to try and deter them from this under, underage sex or drugs or drink. We need, you know, so you're doing all that in the background, but then it always comes down to that session, that one-on-one session that they're banking on you being there. They need you there. If you're not there that week, that's two weeks they don't have you. Their life is shit everywhere else. 
So they need you there. Uh, and that gives you that responsibility. And that responsibility then turns back on you, that you have to raise your game in life. Like, and now I have to be better because I've got all this responsibility for them. And, uh, and yeah, like I, I don't regret a single day of my career. Or I don't regret. I mean, I never pursued money for, or I always pursued what was meaningful. Uh, I understood from a young age how the world works. Uh, a lot of people now probably understand what that means. Uh, well, I understood that from being very young. And I thought, well, how can I not do that? How can I not be those people? And what can I do to try and affect things the other way? And that was the best I could come up with. So that's what I did. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed every minute of it. Mm, it's a gorgeous message there. Because um, the, the 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 idea of, of the young people, I, I, I talk to so many young people, I've started to realize that I have um, a responsibility in my own community very much so um something i can uh fit into an area that no one else can kind of get into which is basically these extremely rough young men who hang around in parks near me and are angry with nearly everyone and want to be loud at, at almost everyone and uh respond really well to my type of language <laughs> which is like brash harsh i take the piss out of them and we have like a battle and then you know eventually um you've given them a, enough respect and enough of your time that they in return respect you because i try and tell people the reason why the majority of people i i've met around can't handle most of these kids is because they don't realize that the first like hour of talking even if it's spread over like months or something where you see him five minutes here or a couple of seconds here. And, you know, the first hour of talking to these kids is often you get lots of insults. You get horrible stuff. You get them. Well, you get defense mechanisms. You get ways that they will say stuff to try and push anybody from, from seeing who they really are, what they really are. And as soon as you get, you know, get them talking in a group as well, when, when they're all hanging around and causing trouble once you get them talking before you know it there's a few of them who are willing to have a conversation and then there's like this turnover there's this uh, change within the group mentality eventually and in a few years on you've got a new group comes in <laughs> it seems to be like that it's like and that and and there, there, there's a place for loads of different people and i what i was what i've been watching is um they, they this is the second year in a row and i'm sure you've you've probably uh have have seen this um in different ways like communities that are breaking down uh hardship loads of you youth out on the street causing trouble breaking into houses cars etc and then you have a community meeting whereas the second year in a row they have this community meeting that goes nowhere and the councillors turn up and the mps turn up and well probably not the mps uh a few political representatives turn up you've got the school people and the police and none of the kids will talk to any of those people or respect any of those people at all there is no chance any of those people can affect any positive change and every single time they enter into the fray it just ends up with them shouting at kids who are shouting back at them in public and it just looks like a, a, a just it, idiotic you know zero um, zero chance so how do we change when you talk about, uh, you know, parallel systems, how do we uh, affect positive change where we can get people to fill the gaps that are being left by these authorities and these systems that leave behind all these youth? 
Well, I think the first thing you have to do is uh, is sort that person in the mirror out. You really have to get yourself straight because, you know, if you're not right with yourself, if you're not living with a degree of uh, of honesty and truth and authenticity, if you're not uh, abiding by the principles that you expect or would hope <clears throat> other people to uh, demonstrate, then uh, I, I then you might wind up being a more damaging. Uh, presence in the lives of others than a positive one because we all have the capacity to destroy it's much easier to do than it is to uh, build up and create and you know going back to that uh that concept that i said about responsibility um you know you have to shoulder that one consciously you know and, and respect it that you have once you go into somebody else's life you have the potential to do an awful lot of good you also have the potential to do an awful lot of bad uh, and you have to be aware of that at all times not just uh, with with other people i'm talking about our own lives too you know our private lives uh, and you, and oftentimes we you know it's very sad but oftentimes we treat the people closest to us worse than we would do a stranger or a colleague at work or someone that we see only as an acquaintance so it always starts at home for me you know i really and it starts with me then it starts with me and my wife and the closest relationship. Then I expand it out. But if anything's going wrong in that immediate circle with me, then you know I'm not going to be able to do get it right with my wife and I'm not going to be able to get it right with the community. So uh, I'm always trying to really reflect on life and make sure that I'm doing the, the basics at home right. Uh, and recently, you know, I've been working really hard, 50, 60 hours a week. And I thought, you know what? I'm missing that middle section out. Like I'm being really busy. My wife's really busy. And I'm helping tons of people out outside of that. But I was like, I need to I, I recognized there was an imbalance. I have to draw it back in and focus more on making sure that I'm being there for my wife because she's working mm -hmm. hard. So I'm always trying to do that reflection to make sure I never get out of balance. So I think that's where it starts, Johnny. And then, and then the parallel system comes from people doing that in their own lives and coming together. Uh, and that's where the magic happens. You know, if you're doing mm -hmm. that, or you know, it doesn't matter how well you're doing it, Johnny. It's the fact that you're trying to do it. You know, I, I mess up all the time. You mess up all the time. That's life. We are failing all the time. But it's about always having that striving for better. And if we come together and we're both doing that, that's amazing. That's alchemy of life. And then we get another mm -hmm. person and another. Well, think about what the community can then do. You've got four or five people like that. Well, that's a more powerful community than 100,000 who don't know each other and are all living these yeah. insular materialistic lives. So, uh, so that's what I'm trying to do, Johnny, is actually lead by example. Uh, and if people feel that and uh, they, they like that, then I, and if they come to me, I'm not teaching them anything. I'm just helping instill in them that same desire to want to do that. You know, you want to do it too? Fantastic. Well, stand beside me. And I'm not here to lead you. I just, but, I, but I want you as a friend. Like if that's genuinely who you are and what you want, then I want to know you. You know, and that's that's what I say to people. I want to know those people and I want to bring them into my life because we're going to need each other. We're really going to need each other in this next 10, 15 years. So what made you change to, to what you're doing uh, now to going out and doing the podcasts and stuff? What made you say, OK, I, 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 I suppose you've got to a level where you're you feel like you're because you're on a homestead, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, um, yeah, we live here on our little farm. And and so you you manage to how, how easy is it how close are you to being completely off the matrix are you are you there already? No, certainly not with food. I mean that's an extremely difficult um, mm -hmm. thing to achieve. And what you realize is that the people who used to live that way, those people led very difficult lives. You know, you're talking twelve to fifteen hours a day every day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty five. 
you could probably do it a little bit easier now if you had uh, was using technologies like certain machines certainly made it easier. But ultimately, I think true self-sufficiency uh, has to be a community endeavor, but you can do an awful lot too. Um, for example, you know, our entire heating in our house, it's all from wood. I chop the wood, uh, you know, our food, uh, we grow significant amounts, significant amounts of food, preserve a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, water comes from our well. Uh, energy, we have off-grid energy. So, yeah, I mean, we can live in the dark ages if we want. If you turn everything out, you know, the candles come out. We, we have energy uh, power cuts all the time here. So we do get to experience what, it, what it's like to be in the dark. And life just goes on because everything's a, everything's a self-contained system. You know, we're heating out like 90% of the year. Uh, no, not 90. I'd say probably 60% of the year it's cold water showers. I usually get showered in the garden with, mm-hmm. a, bu- with a bucket of water. <laughs> a watering can. Uh, because oh, if we don't baby. warm our stove up, uh, we don't get hot water because it's connected to yeah. a hot water tank. So you, you don't get hot water. So it's a simple way of living. Uh, and I've always been like that, Johnny. All my clothes, everything I wear is charity shop. It's uh, I'm very, very simple way of living. I don't want for much in life. Uh, and uh, that's the philosophy that I try and instill in other people is, listen, you can replace all of the artificial in your life that you're not enjoying that's actually poisoning your life. You know, get rid of your TV. We got rid of our TVs 15 years ago. I did. Uh, we, we don't have TVs. We don't have gadgets. It's pure and simple. At night, if I'm not working, if I'm not doing something like this with, with you, uh, which I don't class as work, I class this as sitting with a friend and having a conversation. So this that certainly doesn't work for me. But if I aren't working, editing something, uh, we're playing board games. <laughs> we're playing cards. We're talking. You know, we talk a lot. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's yeah. just a simple way of living, Johnny. It's about replacing the modern bullshit life that they give you all of the crap and fear-mongering mm-hmm. and artificial with real experiences in the garden uh, in the house talking to each other with your animals you know we've got a lot of animals here lots of chickens uh, we have rabbits whatever uh looking after them really simple and you know what it's so grounding because with, with yeah. all this stuff that's going on out in the outside world that they want me to be thinking about i'm not thinking about it i'm thinking about oh i need to get those chickens out this morning and you know, i need to go feed them i need to go water them uh, so that's how we live, and uh, and ultimately, uh, that's th- that's the future that I'm trying to expand into. Like, how can I grow this uh, and bring other people into it? Because that's what I want, you know. But I don't think living like this and being insular is the way out. No, the way out mm-hmm. is community, uh, and yeah, I think yeah, we need yeah. to find ways to 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 build community. So that's where the parallel systems idea comes from. Yeah, I think there needs to be a, a, a level of local um, infrastructure that is. Uh, off gridable is off the matrix is is away from their their systems um but for that in britain for instance um need uh we need uh land laws to change um and that's not going to be very easy to achieve you know uh, it's not going to it's not going to be very easy to achieve under the current system until that current system completely falls apart um though there are certain places in the uk where that happens um but there's also again my language there is limiting i'm limiting myself because there's a load of different places where i could go and just set up a homestead um in wales there's actually special laws in the west of wales um where you can do such things and as long as you can get away from it for long enough you basically keep the land um but i i think that's what i i i don't think people one of the things i've noticed is i don't think people realize how much spare land there is around for such things they think all of the land is taken up 
and it's just not so it's actually very small amount of the land it's built upon um how you, you, you guys are good though in wales you do have a lot of these little communities around where people are doing that england's much more difficult but wales have been much more flexible and uh, a lot of people are now moving to wales to live this kind of future uh, and I know a few little communities on the coast. I, I stumbled across one once. It was like this ghetto. I was like walking, and then <laughs> it's like you know those old Western films where you walk, where the guy walks into town, and then the music comes on. Do 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 do. Well, it was yeah. just like that. And I saw these like all these strange buildings and caravans and people peering out the curtain, and then a, a few dogs barking. And I realized I was in this kind of little uh makeshift community <laughs> it was just there in wales so these places exist yeah but I, I i have to say that wales is a bit like that anyway where you know <laughs> there's, there's um i remember walking into a pub in a place called tavern spite which was near cold blow in uh in uh, <laughs> just West the name is tavern spite near cold blow uh, a tavern tavern spite and the tavern, tavern I, I was i wanted to see how spiteful the tavern was and we went within the tavern and the whole place went completely it was completely full completely quiet and it was just like everybody looked across who are these people these aren't locals uh, it's just uh it is yeah that's that's a very uh, it's it it lends well to that sort of um I know. I I I would think from my own research that it's a different, like it's a calling inside people of a tribe of the past, people who have ancestors who lived a different way, um, don't necessarily have the same traits or the same wants or desires as the p tribe who lived up in a different area with a different set of resources etc exactly and in in the uk there's loads of um uh, uh tribes dotted around the place that people have no idea are actually tribes they call it all homogenous england and the like and it's actually the humbers and the the lanks and the people of the owl met and 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 the people the cornish people are separate from the devonian people so i find that all of that so fascinating because it really shows uh or it really like if you examine it you see each place has a hidden culture loads of traits that, that uh, uh this uh overcast culture kind of like gets forced upon people yet there's still uh, pockets of memory floating around from something that used to be that you see it just bubble up again here or bubble up again there and you see it manifest in different ways it's all around the place um do you miss the north of england yeah, particularly what you just said, actually, that, you know, you grow up in the world in a certain place and you, you do have these really deep connections. Uh, also, just understanding things, like understanding people. Like, I, I was always a people watcher and I could always... I could always feel what was happening in conversations with people like, oh, he's angry. Oh, she's mad at him. Oh, did you see that look that he gave her? And, you know, you could, I, could see, I could feel that and I could see that. Uh, and, you know, every area had its own little culture and you had to work to get into those things. And I love that. I love the dynamic of communication and, you know, how do I get myself into this uh, clique and situation? Like, how do, I, how do I become a member of the community? Like, I love those conversations. I love going to pubs and making friends with people. That culture, the very British pub culture where you, like mm -hmm. you said, you walk in and the whole bar just stops, drinks yeah, yeah, down yeah. and then... 
Uh, that I remember wasn't the first time that had happened. Yeah, go on. I remember uh, when I was in my uh, mid-teens and I, I met a girl and she come from a really nice family, Johnny. Like her family was like the <laughs> nicest part of the city. Uh, definitely middle class, you know, the, the good old middle class. And, and I thought, oh my God, she's rich. <laughs> you know, I, I was growing up on the on the council estate when my dad was in prison. Mm-hmm. My, my dad had a lot of money when he was out, but when he went in, it was all gone. Uh, he had mm-hmm. to pay proceeds a crime bill of like 1.3 million. <clears throat> so he he was wiped out. Uh, and I mean, my him and my mum had divorced, so we grew up in in like poverty. She worked full time and had four kids, and um and and this girl, she was from the nice part of town, you know. She's in that little village on the outskirts. So I met them, and uh, I, and I saw that there was a different world. You know, this I was I'd never seen that world before, and I was like, oh my god, people sit at a table and eat their dinner, and you know, they light a candle. And uh, I remember once he, he, for Christmas, he bought us uh, tickets to a comedy gig in Manchester. Now, of course, I grew up in the rough and ready part of town where violence was never far away. You know, gang warfare was happening all the time. We was always trying to stay away from the gangs. Like, as, as we were skateboarders, so we was always just trying to, mm-hmm. how do we not get ourselves kicked in or stabbed or anything? It was a rough, rough, rough city where we grew up. And, uh, and he took us to this gig in Manchester, and it, it, the gig was like nine o'clock on the evening so he said do you want to go for a drink first so i was like yeah and as i got there i looked around and thought geez this place looks awful i was like where are we and I, and instantly all of my radars are going off you know as somebody mm. who's growing up amongst trouble you've, you're hypersensitive and i'm looking across at like, this guy and that guy and i was like we, we shouldn't be here <laughs> I was like, and he's so oblivious because he's middle class so he goes oh here's a lovely pub let's go sit in there so he goes in this pub and there's about 10 men in there and every one of them stops hands and stares and i say to him i'm like john john this isn't the one pal i like john this isn't the pub let's go to the and he goes he goes three pints please barman <laughs> i was like oh no he's done it i was like he's done it he's ordered the beers and i was like right i'm just gonna drink this as fast as i can and uh and it was really the atmosphere you could have cut it with a damn knife and uh and yeah then I, that's when i realized not everybody sees the world as i see it not everyone mm. has that um not everyone has that encyclopedia of experiences of bad things uh, and i think this is something that e- even today still exists so I, I and i do miss that kind of grittiness of growing up in the north of england and when i go back there i'm so ingrained with that grittiness because i worked in all those communities in the north of england doing what i was doing uh, and where i live now is different it's not like that there isn't much gritty here it's very peaceful very calm we are near the forest and don't get me wrong i'd never trade that for anything because it's a blessing you should never mm-hmm. feel it's not but i do miss that um that edginess of of the places i grew up going to the pub with my dad meeting shotgun shane and all these damn characters you know i do miss that kind of part of it johnny i'm not gonna lie yeah 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 well i i, I, yeah, I mean you you reminded me of uh walking into a a place in a place called Coville, Leicestershire, which must have been the worst place I'd ever gone. I must have been about seventeen, eighteen, and we just were turning into this car park, and I was like, "Let's not do this. Let's just not do. Let's just not go here." And then, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, everybody met met with booze. Come on, let's go. We went just just around a corner, and a line of police cars came out and pulled over the car, and soon people were arrested, and and we were all, all stuck in this place that we was. Friday night, you you know, all you could hear on the radios was about stabbings and there was screamings in the distance.
sense and it was like wow my my dad had uh grow, grown up in like the roughest pub in uh cardiff like my granddad run the dusty forge in ely which if you say that to people in cardiff who were from back then they go oh my god you know it's a place where they kick you out down the metal staircase from upstairs they take you upstairs you get thrown out that way it was a, a real rough place for real rough people and you had to steal the furniture back every night they got all those stories and uh my my dad was a bit rough because of that so i had that like experience but in the same way he had ended up working as a wire tester so managed to uh get some form of affluence in a sense because he got well paid for his he was he i mean it was a it was he worked hard um to for 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 good money um and so so he always seemed like he was a bit above that before and we 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 had a bit of a better lifestyle because of that but it's still that grit it, you just can't get rid of it and the the that that growing up with the understanding of how the other side lives is special and it gives you an insight that a lot of people don't quite understand a lot of people don't understand because people live very sheltered lives and once you're staying in a a, a flat with three bedrooms with uh, over 10 kids and two professional wrestlers uh, living in there and there's pee and all <laughs> All sorts and there's 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 broken glass and there's uh, everything's kicking off and all of them seem to have scabies and whatnot you know it's just like then you realize oh i'm in a rough area now and you know it's uh those experiences you either leave you with black eyes or not <laughs> yeah well these what, are skills that are important as well johnny and and uh, you do realize that unfortunately uh probably you know it's good that people don't have all those experiences yes but uh when you do uh you know you become very very alert you know very adaptable you're a survivor you know i've always in life survived any situation and i never worry about the future because i always just say well i made it through every past situation so why won't i make it through the next one uh, adaptability too you know what i mean like no matter what life throws at me it's like i i can i can use this i can get around this or i can you know use it as a springboard to something else uh so and i think you get that from those experiences uh, and one thing that i have noticed the past few years is most people don't have that and they're struggling to find it this is the first yeah. experience of real hardship whereas for me and I think for you too, it wasn't. And that's why you've hit the ground running on it. You're like, okay, well, I can make these interviews. I can do all this. And other people are sat at home still reeling from what that blow yeah. they got to the, you know, they got a left hook to the jaw in 2020 and they're just still picking themselves up off the floor. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the difference. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't wish certain experiences on people, but it certainly gives you the ability to adapt and, and move forward with, 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 with tough situations. Yeah, and Mike, you've given me and other people loads to think about, and and this has been such a good conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. I've, I I always enjoy speaking with you. I'd like to speak with you uh, much more. Coming up to the end, what, what what's your like core advice to people? I mean, you see, uh, we talk about homesteads and stuff, and that's a very complex, multi layered sort of thing that people have to kind of like approach in their own way and it's really hard but what else in life are you kind of guiding people on at the moment and what what do your platforms help teach in uh basic terms 
Yeah, so my, my YouTube channel, and well, I don't like calling it a YouTube channel. It's on YouTube, but it's on many places. It's on Rockfin, and I'd prefer people to go there. But the Parallel mm-hmm. Systems broadcast is very much uh, focused towards understanding the financial component of all of this. What's coming? Why it's happening? What are these strange-sounding terms like derivatives? Why does it matter? Uh, and just breaking it down in layman's terms, because when I first started I'm investing and learning about finance. I was a layman. I had no clue. I I literally went from running uh, 30, 40 hours a week, training for 34 hours a week, and I had this big gap in my life. And I thought, well, I need to get up to speed financially because otherwise me and my wife are going to wind up stuck in whatever future there is. So I I promised I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to buy you a farm and we're not going to wait until we're 80 to live a dream. You know, we're going to, we're going to figure it out. Uh, and I don't live a dream, you know, I live a reality. Uh, every day's got challenges, but uh, I do try and help people figure that out on the show because I think that's a key one, Johnny. And, and my big worry is that if you get yourself wiped out financially because you don't understand what's coming, you don't understand they've set up actual mechanisms to take your bank deposits. They've set up mechanisms to take your pension. They know you're not getting that money, but if you don't know that, and you are wiped out financially in what comes in this flood, because it is going to be like a biblical flood, then you're done for. You are completely dependent on the state, and that is the point. Mm. So I thought that's my, that's the place where I can have the most impact on people is to help them understand that. So that's what I do on my show. Uh, I also have a private Patreon community where we get into things a little bit more specific, uh, and I help people out financially. We, I do consultations. That's part of my actual work, one-to-one consultations for people that – and need support protecting themselves, their wealth. Uh, And also the practical side of it too, Johnny, which is becoming more self-sufficient and more self-reliant because there are so many threats before us and the risk are getting higher uh, and the fear is getting bigger in our life. So I teach something which is voluntary simplicity. Make your life more simple. You know, Mm. take back control of the things that they're hanging over you like a sword of Damocles food, water, energy. Well, you know, the simple solutions for all of that, Johnny, it can be as simple as just getting yourself a fantastic water filter, a British mm-hmm. Beckerfeld water filter. It'll cost yeah, you about yeah. hundred. Big, and big that, that water filter will change your life. It will mm-hmm. change your life. That one thing, knowing every day that you're not putting fluoride, uh, micro traces of, of all kinds of drugs, you know, psychotropic drugs, all kinds of them are in that water. Knowing that that's not going in your body, that can be the first domino, Johnny. It was for me. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, you find out I've come so far from there, but I just start simple, start really simple. Uh, listen to people like Johnny, check out different shows that give you advice, but don't get bogged down in the fear. Do not allow yourself mm-hmm. to go into that whirlpool of all these different accounts that are just spreading fear. That's no good. And if somebody's not offering you solutions as well, I think that needs to be a warning sign. That's a red flag. If so, like if I go online, Johnny, if I'm on Twitter and somebody's showing me all the bad stuff, but they're not offering any solutions, they're gone. I don't want to hear it. If somebody comes in my comment section and they just tell me, oh, well, what's the point in trying? X, Y, and Z are going to do this to you. They're gone. That's the only That's the only line in my sand is if you like that, if you've got no hope, no, I don't want to speak to you. So keep your hope. Don't allow those people to infect your life because that's part of the plan too. Uh, and start simple. And that's what I do, Johnny. And I've also, yeah, like you, I've got a podcast where I do deep dives on all kinds of things, financial history. Uh, the alchemy of money, how they got us to this place. If you want to learn more about that, then you can decode it. Uh, then yeah, check out the podcast as well. Yeah, that's awesome, awesome. And I yeah, I, everybody should uh, 
get on to understanding that when you're talking about that a biblical flood is is just the best way to to explain it i i'd I'd not thought of it kind of like that but i've i thought of the what is coming i know what i i I have a grasp of what's coming financially because of all my uh work over the past few years has led me to examine um the people who are putting the next sort of like financial system into place and how that will work and the mechanisms and it will be just uh big time take everything just everything gets gets whooped up we say everything gets just taken away um and it's the most terrifying idea that a lot of people are just sleepwalking into that they can just take away everything from you all of those things my my mum and my uh other relatives spent a lot of time seeing like i'm building up my life i'm going to pay off my mortgage then i'll be able to hand down my uh house and my uh some of my financial stuff to my kids they've been looking for ways to just take all of that away and all of that life based upon doing these things for this reason and then the reason is just taken away right at the end just snatched away it's just so evil it's um it's it's machiavellian um very yeah thank you so much for coming on and you i i hope we talk many times throughout the rest of our life Thanks. I'm sure we will, Johnny. You know, I class you as a friend. I know we haven't met in person, but uh, we certainly have a rapport and we have an energy uh, like attracts like. And I think you're on the right path. And uh, I look forward to seeing how your life develops. And we all have difficult times ahead of us. We have difficult times uh, at present, but, you know, you are going to get through them and you're going to be right up there with the best of them. You know, you're helping people. And that's a beautiful thing, my friend, is to to have that. If there is such a thing as karma, you're, you're building it. You're stacking it up. You are wonderful. Thank you. And uh, and and man, I I tell you what, life is really it, it is just test after test after test after test. And after a while, you realize that you don't want to hear all of like people telling you that you can't you can't pass the next test because you're going to have to pass the next test. And I think that's what uh, you really bring to, to to my mind with your work and what you do. Love you, Mike. Love you.